this, you know, thing that they're saying this is the final stage. And a lot of the people they interviewed were like, we just stayed because we honestly invested so much money and time into it that it's like, what do you do now? And even when I left at like 27, that was the first thing or one of the first things that popped in my head was like, well, I've invested so much into this church. Like, what do, do I really just walk away now? Do I leave? Like, it seems like it makes the rest of your life feel like you've wasted it otherwise. Yeah. So it was oh, a yeah. question of like, do you stay? Do you, you've invested a lot? Like, I don't know, even though it's so, it's all a lie, it's all bullshit, but it's like you, you spent so much time convincing yourself and everyone else and investing all of your energy into this thing that you're like, do I just walk away? I don't know. It's, it's not as simple. And I think with older people, like that's definitely even harder because they have double the amount of time, you know? And yeah. Hey besties. Uh, this is part two of last week's episode. Um, we're continuing the story of Erval LeBaron and the Four O'Clock Murders. Um, right, like literally, right the very second from the last episode of the, where it ended off. So, um, if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to it. Um, this ep- part is where it gets really gruesome, so and graphic. So. Um, there are some descriptions of murders that are kind of triggering if, or they could be, um, they could be triggering. So, um, if you are not in the space for that, then, um, you may want to skip this one, but, um, that is all I'm going to say with that. I'm very grateful again for Dusty, Sarah, and Katie for being co-hosts with me and for listening to this, um, all this stuff, and um, also, again, um, you can listen to Not Somali Mormons um, coverage of this very story um, on their podcast. It's episode 131. And um, with that, let the bullshit continue. Like even in Scientology and stuff, like the further up you get, I feel like there's like you can't tell me that they don't know it's not bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, and I so I think it becomes like some somewhere in there you become pulled into like the secret part of it where it's like, hey, we know it's bullshit. You can like, yeah, I don't know. That's just my conspiracy yeah, yeah. Theory maybe. Like, of just like you can't tell me that they don't know that it's all just crap. And then also the um, I think that further up you get it it's also this like fear like there's probably like mm-hmm. i know in like uh scientology they use a lot of blackmail but there's also like a fear of like what will happen to me if i leave kind of thing well, it's your yeah. community right like yeah. you lose your family you lose your community you lose sometimes your job is tied up in it like yeah, yeah the fear is real for sure yeah, yeah. Or like in Mormons, like I know people that they're going to a church school and if they leave, then they lose their ecclesiastical endorsement. And then what do they do for school? Right. And they can't sometimes they're like it's cheaper for them to go to the church schools. And so they can't afford to go to a different school. So they have to stay like there's so many aspects to it. That's so it's such a tangled web. For sure. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if, too, like, going, like, I think maybe the stigma of the leaving the church and how it's not stigma, but, like, uh, that fear of, like, your your children leaving, I wonder if that all ties back to, like, the blood atonement thing. Like, it's just, like, that's, because it used to be such a, like, actual life and death thing if you left. Yeah, yeah. it's covenanted in the church that upon your death, like... Yeah. It was pretty extreme that you would not you would not be leaving, buddy. <laughs> and now we still like deal with the remnants of that being passed down, and it's not just it's not necessarily like a physical death, but it more just like a 
like a spiritual not to get like yeah. but like a spiritual death yeah. and you're just like you're cut oh, yeah. off. And so but it, it definitely is because, yeah, you're completely you're told by the members that you are cut off from the Holy Ghost, which is like the number one thing that your entire life you've been holding on to so that you could be a good person. And so, yeah, it is a spiritual death because they're saying that's gone. That's mm-hmm. dead. It's terrifying. We've, we've literally been told by um, trolls that we Sarah and I have had a spiritual death. Yeah, that's what they think. (laughs) Yeah, we have died and we are not a ghost yet, or are we? I don't know. Maybe you're ghosts. Ghosty bitches now. (laughs) I need those dousing rods. So. Joel LeBaron was shot in the head by one of Irwell's followers on 20th of August, 1972. Um, So, and Irwell LeBaron goes to prison. He's apprehended by police in Mexico in 1979. So this is before he goes to prison, right? So then I'm just trying to keep the the timeline Mm -hmm. straight for you because it took me a while to figure out because I had to buy this book because there's like so much, like some vague stuff on the internet and then it's like like you talk about the four o'clock murders and they don't really even like i couldn't find anything on the internet about it like i just had to yeah be- yeah like i've heard <laughs> about the this that you just told us about how he had his brother killed but i haven't heard about the four o'clock murders probably because they're not online yeah they're just mentioned they're just kind of referred to and i'm like okay well um so the reason it even came up was because, and we'll probably get to that, but the one of the daughters, what is her name? Let me look it up real quick. Sorry. Uh, Jacqueline Tarsila Barron on December 14th, 2012, um, was released from federal custody, but she had been, uh, she had been captured by the FBI in May, 2010. And she was, uh, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to obstruct religious beliefs and faced a five-year maximum sentence. So she's the la- latest one to have been caught in all this. And um, mm-hmm. she just got released in 2012. Is that what I said? Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty recent. This is still going on. Like they're still finding. And I think that's what kind of gave me the nightmares too, is just like this stuff. And I'll get to that because it's like, this is crazy because um, he's still, his hold is still, very much into these people. Yeah. Um, let's see. Mormondom's first prophets consolidated their power by rewarding rewarding their loyalists in both this life and the hereafter. So that's another thing. That's why people stay is because the hereafter. Oh yeah. It's yeah. always gonna they, be better yeah. in the next life, right? Just mm-hmm. hold on. Ugh. I hate it. Similarly, Irville was prepared to bestow a fabulous array of prizes on those who remained true to his teachings. A loyal disciple might be allowed to take up plural marriage or promoted to a higher position in the church leadership. Daniel Jordan was given the crown of eternal life. Lloyd Sullivan was made first counselor to the president of the kingdom of God. Not quite immortality, but a big step up for a used appliance repairman who had never made it out of high school. But, like, you you have eternal life? Like, where's, where's... I want the receipts, first of all. Like, how... Yeah, yeah how can you guarantee that? Like, <laughs> yeah. This, remi- this reminds me of the second anointing in yeah. regular Mormon. Like, you're just guaranteed salvation just because. Yeah. And you can no do matter what you do, you as long as you don't deny the Holy Ghost or whatever, right? Like, yeah, just don't leave the Mormon church and, and so, do whatever else you I think you it want. would be happening a lot more often because they're leaving in droves right now. <laughs> burn it down <laughs> uh, let's see if we obeyed the commandments of major magnitude Sullivan recalled, recalled we were told that we would receive a crown of righteousness or a calling an election into the kingdom of God we would be accepted ah, hey, into calling the an election that's the yeah. same wording yeah. Yeah. yeah it is crazy huh Yeah. Uh, we would be accepted into the universe as gods and goddesses Sounds familiar, yeah. Yep, gods and goddesses. (laughs) Uh, In addition, Ervil could take advantage of various aspects of Mormon culture to cement his authority. One of the handiest was the faith's emphasis on family life. Uh, The emphasis is 
an important reason for the Mormon Church's continuing vitality and for the historical closeness of most Mormon families. On the flip side, it also makes the decision to leave the faith an extremely difficult one, for a Mormon breaking with the church often means breaking with one's family. Uh, Ervil benefited from another Mormon tradition, obedience to authority. In Mormonism, this authority does not rest in the decisions of church councils or even in the scriptures, but with the man who holds the office of the church president. Beginning with Joseph Smith and continuing today, the president of the prophet, the church of Jesus, uh, the church of Jesus. Oh, God. Okay, let me start (laughs) over on that. Um, The church of, oh, God. (laughs) 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 Beginning with Joseph Smith and continuing today, the president or prophet of the church of Latter-day Saints is viewed by the faithful as God's own messenger on earth, unerring and all-knowing. Since they had already been inculcated with this concept of papal infallibility in their spiritual leaders by virtue of their Mormon upbringing, Herbal's disciples found it natural to accept his demands for unquestioning faith and obedience. Yep. Mm-hmm. There it is. Yeah. That's why uh, I like Mormons it. get tapped for, like, jobs that need, like, exactness. Like, I know... Like, like FBI, F, oh my God, the FBI really likes to go after like Mormon guys because they know that they're, they can follow like exact orders to the T. And the military, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Military. Total sense. Yeah. And they're yeah. very, like you were just saying, like obedience is like drilled into them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a relative of mine very much wanted to like work for the FBI and like got to interview stages because like he'd served a mission and all this stuff, so... Uh, also at Herbal's disposal was Mormon history. That history was one of persecution. Nah. From being burned out of Missouri to the murder of their founding prophet to their desperate journey to the safety of Utah, the early Mormon saints had every reason to fear their Gentile neighbors. Dissension within the ranks, therefore, was tantamount to treason, and both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had dealt swiftly with any potential troublemakers. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're with us or you're against us. Yeah. Shit, that's so scary. And we'll, like, yeah. literally kill you if you're against yeah. us. And God says that we're supposed to if you're yeah. against us. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to obey the laws of the land because it's God's law. It's a higher law. Yeah, it's a higher law, right? Mm. Uh, Erville, too, convinced his band that outsiders were to be distrusted, that church members could rely, only rely on each other, and any opposition to Erville's rule was the sure sign of a heretic and traitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like disgustingly similar, but like it like in an extreme way. Like it's just like an exaggerated way, but like we dealt with the same shit. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's, and it's all bred from the same beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's all from similar. the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It just branched off into different ways. It's all abusive though. Yep. All right. Um, as if in recognition of the familial structure of his cult, Erwell planned a family-oriented extravaganza for his next strike against the apostates. By removing the fallen prophet Joel, Erwell had sincerely believed the firstborner faithful would see the error of their ways and flock to his uh, ministry. So, firstborner. Oh, a firstborner. <laughs> First boner. That's exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> um, it was now clear that merely cutting off the head of the serpent had not been sufficient to bring the heretics to their senses required a total cleansing, an all-out battle between the forces of good, e- good and evil. In ah. December 1974, Ervold chose the site for the first cleansing. It would come in Los Molinos, the firstborn community on the Baja Peninsula. At Christmas, the prophet's followers began closing in on the hamlet, preparing for the Armageddon between the families of the saved and the families of the fallen. This is insane. Whoa. Yeah. So he, the Los Molinos attack um, is right. Yeah. I skipped a bunch of this stuff because it's all setting it up, but the, um, okay, so, (laughs) insane right i can't okay (laughs) yeah just the word cleansing is terrifying i don't like it yeah Yeah. 
Dusty and just said, you know, I'm getting rid of the dog ears as I go. <laughs> I'm straightening them out because <laughs> it killed me to do it. <laughs> Thank you. My anxiety was like. <laughs> uh, December 26th was a strange day in Los Molinos, one of which one in which herbal supporters engaged in a lot of furtive activity. Around noon. Blah, wow, I can't. Okay. Around noon, Rena Chinoweth, the 16-year-old daughter of Bud and Thelma, arrived from the United States in a green Fiat sedan. Accompanying her was Jorge LeBaron, Herbal's 19-year-old son from his second marriage, and two of the Prophet's young sons, 11-year-old Isaac and 9-year-old Craig. So you got Rena, uh, Jorge, and Isaac and Craig. Who are children, the two. Mm-hmm. They're oh. all basically children, though. She's yeah. 16. He's uh, 19. Um, in the afternoon, the four in the afternoon, the four had carried several boxes and bundles of clothes from the Chinuith home out of the car as if they were closing up the house for a while. At about the same time, Maria de la Luz Vega, Herbal's second wife, locked up her trailer home and left the colony. Shortly after four o'clock in the afternoon, a second vehicle carrying Herbal supporters arrived from the United States. In the rust-colored GMC pickup truck stolen from California were Mark and Dwayne Chinuith, along with Don Sullivan and Eddie Marston. I know this is a lot of names, so you guys, I don't even know if I know who all these people are, but <laughs> they're all like. They're all people. basically Irvil's followers, though, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but they all, like Eddie Marston is a, he's going to be, sorry, I got a <laughs> wet dog near me now. Okay. All right. <laughs> she just got a bath. Okay. All right. We're good. All right. You're good. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, sorry. All right. She can just sense all of her anxiety and is like, I'm here. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. She's gone. All right. Oh, um, where was I? For a half hour, they slowly drove around the colony, speaking to no one. They passed, then rendezvoused with Rena out by the coastal dunes. By 5.30, both carloads, carloads uh, of herbalites. They're called herbalites. <laughs> 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 Sounds like Herbalite. Herbalite! More MLM! <laughs> Which is so funny, but sorry, side note here in the UK, because I'm always like, oh, we're talking about like MLMs, and I'll be like, yeah, like Herbalife. And they're like, oh, Herbalife. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what you guys call it here. It's so quite, cute. Yeah. Herbalife. Oh. It's adorable. Uh,. Let's see. The naive villagers breathed easier. Unbeknownst to the firstborners, firstborners, it was not Colonial LeBaron that was to receive the first pouring out of God's judgments, but Los Molinos. His generalized threats aside, Herbal desperately sought the elimination of Berlin, the younger brother who had usurped, usurped his title and who now stood at the head of the hated firstborners. Herbal's archenemy was rumored to be staying in Los Molinos, so it was there his soldiers would strike. So he's going to Los Molinos. He's sending his people to Los Molinos to kill Berlin. Mm-hmm. He just wants uh, all of his brothers dead. Mm-hmm. Like, I've fought with my sisters. We've been in some pretty good, <laughs> like, throw-down, hair-pulling. But, like, to actually be like, I'm going to go murder my sibling? And not even to have you murder them. You're going to have your yeah, little I'm gonna send. Stupid. Yeah, I'm going to send you three your... to go take out my sister. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah, <laughs> yeah crazy. All right. This, this time, however, there was no need to lure the victim away from his protecting retinue, as had been done with Joel. The soldiers of the Lord were now organized into a disciplined and well-armed killing machine. If they had to go through a dozen firstborners to get to Berlin, they had the will and weaponry to do it. In the autumn of 1974, the Prophet's minions had been tutored in the art of warfare by a new convert to the faith, Dean Vest. He's going to become important later. A Vietnam veteran with a steel plate in his skull, Vest had assumed the role of Herbal's military advisor, instructing younger members of the cult in the operation of high-powered rifles and the manufacture of firebombs. Their education completed, Herbal's chosen hit squad, Don Sullivan, Eddie Marston, the Chinuith brothers, along with their sister, Rena, had been sequestered in San Diego, awaiting the final go-ahead. During the Christmas holidays, the Lord had finally passed along his battle orders to Herbal. Of course he did. 
Yeah. What God does. Yeah. Christmas. And then he's like, okay, wait until Christmas. Now, now go kill him. That's what I, such a loving God. And they got warfare training from a Vietnam veteran. That's just, oh, it's just. Yeah. You know, a lot (laughs) of these, a lot of these names you're saying, I'm like remembering um, when I covered this. I looked it up, by the way. It was episode 131. Oh. Wow. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go re-listen to it. you guys cover it? Like, what, I don't... I know I've listened to it, but what'd you... Yeah, we covered, like, this that you're covering now and a couple other things. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I don't have to get into too much detail with some of this, but, like, the... Um, uh, God's plan was devilish, devilishly clever. The hit squad would first reconnoiter Los Molinos in broad view during daylight hours. Their subsequent departure would ease the firstborners' fears and cause them to lower their guard. Um, the, the attack would take place on the night of December 26th. Even on that day, there remained a last chance to avert the bloodshed of Joel Castro if Joel Castro acted on the warning he'd finally received from San Diego. But the firstborn bishop apparently didn't get, or at least didn't read, the letter until that evening. The winter sun had already slipped beyond the western dunes, and most of the villagers had retired to their homes. Since the letter named Colonial Le Baron, not Los Molinos, as Irville's target, Castro decided the matter could wait until the morning. Uh-oh. Yeah. That's a, that's a slight error, hey? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just after 9 o'clock that night, Dwayne Chinoweth turned the rust-colored pickup truck off Highway 1 and started down the dirt road leading to Los Molinos. In the truck bed were his brother Mark, Don Sullivan, and Eddie Marston. A variety of weapons and several rows of one-liter beer bottles converted into Molotov cocktails. Behind Dwayne Rena and Herbal's three sons in the green Fiat sedan. 100 feet, 100 feet down the dirt road beside a spur of land that led to the mesa overlooking Los Molinos, Rena stopped the car. She let out the two younger boys, Isaac and Craig, who were 9 and 11, remember? Oh. And instructed them to climb to the top of the hill. From there, she promised they would have an excellent view of the fireworks. Fire, Fireworks. Oh. They're killing people, but go... Oh my god. That's horrendous. She and Jorge then continued on, following the pickup truck as it headed for the t- tower house at the north end of the colony. At 9.20, the tower house, the three-story home of Virginia Lopez, burst into flames. The fire, fueled by the home's old, untreated wood and a light breeze, spread quickly. Once the Lopez family had been rescued, the firstborners... I can't see firstborners without thinking firstborners still. (laughs) uh, uh, They turned their attention to saving the home from total destruction. Uh, the constant dousings of water gradually began to have an effect. Within 15 minutes, the flames were no longer spreading and had been put out completely in places. Uh, they now switched to throwing buckets of sand on the trouble spots. Um, in the shadows, those in the raiding party were showing extraordinary patience. After throwing the Molotov cocktails onto the tower house, they had secreted themselves in the darkness 20 yards away beyond the glow of the fire. Uh, let's see. When several of the younger men of Los Molinos climbed to the second floor landing of the tower house, the attackers must have sensed they couldn't wait much longer. From that height, the firstborners could quite easily spot their hiding places. When Manassas Mendez clambered to the third floor, the waiting stopped. One of the attackers raised his rifle, aimed at the boy, and pulled the trigger. Mm. Amid the snapping and spitting of the dying fire, it's doubtful that anyone gathered before the tower house recognized the first loud crack as a gunshot. Even when Manassas tumbled from his perch and crashed to the ground before them, the onlookers were probably more amazed than alarmed. In the indistinct light, they couldn't see the blood now pouring from the boy's shattered leg. Clutching his knees, Manassas began to scream for his aunt. Oh my god. Which son was this? Greg or... I can't remember the one. It was... Let's see. I'm trying to see. Manassas was the... He was a... 16-year-old, and he was, sorry, I'm trying to see what the, who, well, there's Dwayne, Dwayne Chinoweth, is that who you're talking about? Maybe, I don't know, sorry. No, you're fine. Um, Herbal's soldiers, uh, so they're Mark and Dwayne Chinoweth, Don Sullivan and Eddie Marston are the four uh, that okay. There and so they leveled their weapons at the crowd and fired random fired randomly into their midst. 
One after another, firstborners began to buckle or spin to the ground. Others stood immobile, too shocked or confused to move. The, attacker, the attackers kept firing. So they basically drew out these people with the fire and then... Just picked uh, them off. Yeah. Jesus. On all so, of these people, they're just like innocent people. They're just not following Ervil. So he's yeah. like, we got to cleanse them and get rid of them. Yeah. Um, let's see. For... <laughs> It's, a, it's the Ervalistas, uh, someone finally shouted. By then, the shooter's target pool had largely evaporated on the ground before the tower house with crumpled forms and nearly a dozen firstborners, some lying still, others writhing or trying to crawl towards safety. Amid the moans and cries of the wounded, the voice of one stood out. It was that of Manassas Mendez, the 16-year-old who had taken the first bullet while standing on the third floor landing. Throughout the attack, he had kept screaming in pain and calling for his aunt. He continued to do so as Erval's gunmen moved m- among the wounded. Uh, Manassas's cry, Manassas's cries caught the attention of Mark Chinuith, the 22-year-old Chinuith, a young man with a natural talent for music. I don't know why they had to throw that in there. Who had always dreamed of someday hitting the big time with his own band, stepped over the bodies of several other firstborners and approached Manassas. For a moment, Mark stood over the boy and listened to his cries. He then pointed a shotgun at his chest and fired. Oh, oh God. After sorting through the wounded, Erval's soldiers realized their mission wasn't over. Their primary target, Verlin the Baron, was not among those shot at the tower house. It was time to initiate the fallback plan of the operation. They returned to their vehicles. The next 20 minutes were more, even more terrifying for the firstborners of Los Molinos. As the two attack vehicles crisscrossed the settlement, one home after another was struck with firebombs and gunfire. Myro Aguilar, then 22, remembered what happened when the pickup truck reached his house. I had heard the explosions and the shooting from down the street, and then I saw the truck coming slowly toward us. Suddenly, boom, I heard explosions on the roof. Someone came to the front window and started shooting into the house at us. Another went to the back window, and he was shooting inside as well. My family is running, shouting, trying to hide. Can't even imagine. All in the name of God. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, on the other side of the frontier, American law enforcement fo- officers also began to show an interest in the Prophet's Holy Crusade. On December 28th, Rena Chinuith, still driving the green Fiat sedan, was stopped at the Tijuana border post and ca- taken into custody. Under questioning, she admitted being in Los Molinos on December 26th, but denied playing any part in the attack. Uh, but like, she's still a kid. She's just a kid. You know, I'm just like years old. Like we all did stupid things at 16. You know, yeah. I mean, we didn't murder innocent people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But so she's one of his wives, right? Uh, Rena is. I thought she was the daughter of his second oh. wife, wasn't? Let me just look here. She's got. Uh, Sorry, it's, I... it's just connected somehow. But... Yeah. Yeah. She's just doing she's, this because she is one of his wives. Oh, actually. she is. Oh, I was. So wrong. she's yeah. a child bride, yeah. and, and a murderer. By just being told, like, by her husband and supposedly this prophet, he thinks he's the prophet that he, she needs to go kill all these people. Like, that's so crazy. Can we just like oh, these men, these leaders, are such fucking assholes who send children to do things while they cower behind and I just I uh, I have no words yeah disgusting Uh, let's see so um, I think I don't know if I earmarked it but the um, I did read that Rena was supposed she was in love with I think it's Dan the one of the or Dean Dean or Dan, one of the two. She was in love with one of them, and she, like, they actually, he had asked, is it Dean? I could be wrong. I might be getting too ahead of it, but, like, they had asked Ervil to let them get married, and then he denied it, and he made her marry him. Oh. Of course. So. Of course he of did. Course. Because how, how dare some woman not be completely want to be with him? Like, that's just, Yeah. Ugh. yeah. <sighs> yeah, he's disgusting. Um, let's see. So, let's see. 
First, however, the Church of the Lamb would claim the life of one more person in Mexico. In some ways, it has was to be the most vicious of the eight confirmed murder, murders the cult committed during Irville's reign. One evening in late January 1975, two of Irville's Ir- plural wives, Vonda White and Yolanda Rios, oh, this one, okay, sorry, I just, <laughs> okay, uh, uh, they left Ensenada in a 1970 Blue Dodge. Their destination was the nearby foothills of the San Pedro Mountains. With them was Noemi Zarate, the plural wife of Bud Chinoweth. After nightfall, Vonda stopped in a lonely arroyo and ordered Noemi from the car. Uh, making the confused woman stand near the right rear of the Dodge, Vonda took a few steps away, then turned. In a raised hand was a thirty-eight revolver. Before Noemi had time to react, Irville's tenth wife pumped several bullets into her. Uh, with Yolanda's help, Vonda tossed Noemi's body into the trunk of the Dodge, gathered up the spent thirty-eight shells, and kicked dirt over the pole of the blood on the road. Vonda and Yolanda then drove farther into the foothills until they came to a side road on the rise of on a rise of land. From there, they had a good view of the road in both directions. They would see or hear any approaching car. The women labored at the dry, rocky soil with shovels for several hours. By midnight, Noemi Zarate had been dumped in her shallow grave, and Herbal's wives were back in the, with their families in Ensenada. When the prophet received the news from Mexico, Mexico he was beside himself with joy. Oh, my God. You don't know how pleased the Lord is that the traitor is dead. Oh, my God. Jesus. And they still have not found her body. Um, According to all reports, Noemi was a sweet and loving wife to her new husband, obeying his every wish and bearing him two new sons. By early 1975, however, she had apparently undergone a complete personality change. In the two paragraphs she devotes to to Noemi's death in her book, Rena Chinowith writes... After the Los Molinos raid, she had just sort of went crazy. She reportedly began... Can you imagine? I mean, of course, she went crazy. She, her town had gotten attacked. <laughs> she reportedly began threatening to go to the authorities with what she knew about the group. Word of this must have gotten back to Irville. He ordered her silenced. If the explanation for Noemi's murder is questionable, so too is the identity of the person who, of the person who ordered it. Virtually all chroniclers, including Rena Chinuth, Place the blame squarely on Irville. But why would Irville want her dead? A man who bothered so little with his Mexican own Mexican wives, he bothered even less with one of the, with those of his followers. What's more, Bud Chinwith's family was vitally important to the prophet. Would he risk losing their support by gratuitously bumping off one of Bud's wives? While Irville most certainly gave his stamp of approval to, Noe- to Noemi's murder, it is just as certain that the idea originated with someone else. Uh, as for Noemi, she remains one of the forgotten victims of the LeBaron saga. No one has ever spent a day in prison for her murder, and her body has never been found. She remains buried in her shallow grave somewhere in the foothills of the San Pedro Mountains. I wanted to make sure that I mentioned her murder because she's apparently keeps getting forgotten. So, There's like no justice for her at all. Mm-hmm. And it was probably something, she probably just ticked somebody off, the wrong person, rubbed them the wrong way, and they were like, well, let's kill her, yeah. because that's what we do now, and we'll just say it was in God's name. Like, yeah, these fundamentalists make me insane. Mm-hmm. So he's going after. Uh, let's see, he's going after Verlin again because he didn't get him with Los Molinos. So um, uh, he's going to lure them, lure Verlin out. I do remember this when I was reading this. I remember, I feel like I remember you talking about this, Katie, about that funeral. So um, that triggered something in my brain when I was like, I feel like I've heard this before. Um, uh, with the right kind of funeral, say the funeral of someone very close to him, Verlin would be almost, almost required to come out of hiding and officiate at the proceedings. It would be then at the memorial service or even at the graveside that Irville's gunmen might finally get the firstborn leader of the, in their crosshairs. On the evening of April 19th, Aria call, received a call from a young woman who claimed to be a Mormon eager to learn more about the fundamentalist gospel. Fully committed to the polygamy doctrine and something of a proselytizer, Rhea readily agreed to a meeting. The woman, identifying herself as Bonnie Roberts, was reluctant to visit the Coons' home or to be seen publicly conversing with a known fundamentalist. Arrangements were made for the women to meet that night, that night by the stables of a riding club 20 miles south of Salt Lake City. As Rhea drove to the rendezvous site, however, she began to sense something was amiss. At one point, convinced she was was being followed, she pulled off the road into a gas station parking lot. After several minutes of watching the passing traffic, she calmed herself and continued on. 
At the entrance to the writing club, the ominous... ominous I can't speak anymore. The ominous sensation returned. A terrible feeling came over her. Her son-in-law, Verlin, wrote. Hurriedly, she wrote her car, turned her car, and drove away. It would be three more years before Rhea would find out how close she came to being killed that night. Waiting for her at the stables was not the fictitious Bonnie Roberts, but the very real Lloyd Sullivan, clutching a nine-shot twenty-two caliber revolver. Acting as lookouts for Lloyd were his son Don and Erville's eldest son, Arturo. Uh, let's see. So there's, um, it's crazy shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is all insane. <laughs> <laughs> we're almost to the, we're almost to the four o'clock murders. Um, I won't go into, yeah. Um, Let's see. Lloyd stopped beside the rock mound, the Indian marker. Bob had so excitedly spotted a moment before. Both men looked around for some sign of the chi five chieftains, but nothing stirred on the desert landscape. Leaving the engine and headlights on, Lloyd climbed out of the car and walked to the sun bushes beside the road to relieve himself. Bob stepped out into the night. He went in a few feet beyond the front of the car and stopped directly in the headlights beams. From Lloyd's vantage point, it appeared Bob was peering into the distance, still looking for Indians. He clearly did not see or hear the two young men who suddenly emerged from behind some nearby bushes to stealthily creep toward him, even when, when Eddie Marston raised a 12-gauge shotgun to within six inches of his head. Bob didn't turn, but continued to stare out into the night. Eddie pulled the shotgun trigger. Nothing happened. Mark Chinoweth, thinking his confederate seized up, raised his 30, uh, 357 Magnum pistol into the back of Bob's head. He frantically, frantically looked over to Eddie. Eddie lowered the shotgun and hastily examined it in the glare of the headlights he had forgotten to release the safety catch flipping the lever he raised the gun once more this time the left side of bob's head exploded the blast instantly uh. sent the indian prophet sprawling into the dirt road and he lay there motionless in the silence mark turned on eddie i thought you were never going to shoot him he hissed the three soldiers of the lord carried the dead man to his prepared grave some 50 feet away after removing bob's coat watch and wallet they placed his body face up in the shallow trough then poured the ersatz quicklime over him they smoothed over the gravesite and covered the sprays of blood on the road with fresh dirt. Eddie dug a separate little grave for Bob's Timex with the heel of his boot. Their night's work done. The three killers started the long drive home, first stopping in a diner and Price for coffee. Oh, my God. Uh, so they killed him because he was, uh, was he also like a rival of Erbil's? Mm -hmm. He was called the Indian Prophet. I remember that, Bob yeah. Simons. And he wasn't he also like a polygamist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He wasn't going to give his power over to Ervil, so they killed him. So they killed him. Yep. Uh -huh. There's a pattern for sure. Um, oh, let's see. The Lord. Oh, let's see. The Lord had asked for a woman to carry out De Dean's blood oath. So Dean, best, right? So his um, yeah, his trusted his little name. his trusted little sidekick so this is where okay so don thought there might be a um until very recently dean vest had been this is what i was talking about dean vest had been herbal's rival for the affections of the 16 year old rena chinoweth dean had very nearly won that competition as recently as the autumn of 1974 rena had been totally smitten with the big old teddy bear of a man and desperately wanted to marry him so in October, Dean and Rena had asked the prophet for permission, for permission to marry. It didn't take long for Ervil, the man who had been sexually molesting Rena since she was 12, in anticipation of their eventual full, full bore sealing, to decide uh. Dean wasn't the right husband for her. Instead, he gave Dean another cult woman, Lynn Roddenkirk, and took Rena for himself in February 1975. Of course, of course he did. Of course he did. Uh, let's see. Herbal and Rena's marriage, as stated earlier, got off to a shaky start as well. Quite possibly, Herbal attributed, 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 oh my God, attributed Rena's lack of ardor to some lingering affection she held for her former suitor. So there's this whole passage in here where he talks about how Herbal could not get it up for Rena, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then she laughed at him too so oh no you don't laugh at a narcissist man no. <laughs> oh god uh so <sighs> this one's 
Herbal's daughter, Rebecca. <laughs> okay, so... Um, as 1977 began, Herbal was on a roll. Twice the forces of temporal authority had persecuted him. Twice he had been arrested, shackled, and hauled into a courtroom to stand trial for murder. Despite all the intrigues and treacheries of the firstborn or serpents, twice he had been set free. To the true believers, there was ample proof that the Lord watched over and protected his prophet. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Or he sends child soldiers to do his dirty work. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> uh, well, let's see. So, I'm going to skip some of that. There's, so his, his third child by Delphina, his first wife, Rebecca, had been a strikingly beautiful girl, tall and slender, with brown eyes and olive skin. She had inherited the strong angular features of the LeBaron family, but they were softened by her mother's Latin blood. Outgoing and generous, she had helped Delphina tend her younger siblings during the early 1970s when Erbil had virtually abandoned his first family and left them to subsist in a hovel outside Ensenada. Despite that ordeal, Rebecca had remained a kind-spirited and happy girl. But that had been the old Rebecca. When the wealthy Victor Chinoweth had joined his cult in 1975, Erbil instantly realized he needed to keep his new financial patron satisfied, or at least, do you guys know where this is going? Or at least place him in a position where he would find it difficult to leave. The prophet offered up his young daughter as the door prize. At the age of 15, Rebecca had been given over to Vic as his second wife. At 15? Yep. Like, fuck uh, this guy. Like, oh my god. Yeah. So Sex trafficking, child yep. soldiers, like, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, it was not a happy union. To, uh, to Rebecca, oh, it seemed her new, hu- new husband was only interested in her for sex. <laughs> Other Shocking. than these brief interludes, Vic, Vic virtually ignored her, much preferring the company of his first wife, Nancy. When Rebecca complained of her treatment, Vic usually responded with even greater iciness. Um, let's see. Along with good looks, Rebecca seemed to have inherited another trait from her parents, mental instability. Shortly after her marriage, she began to have bouts of depression, punctuated by violent temper tantrums. I mean, imagine. Well, weird. Imagine a 15-year-old child having some bouts of depression and temper tantrums after yeah. being given to a man to be raped over and over. Yeah, shocking. By your father. Yeah. Yeah. I, she, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. She took to shoplifting and binging on food, bloating to well over 160 pounds. It all merely deepened Victor's scorn. He called her fat, ugly, and lazy to her face and to her others in her presence. His abuse of his second wife escalated to such a point that Vic's brother Mark began to intercede on Rebecca's behalf. Um, wow. In summer 1975, her spirits lifted dramatically. Um, let's see. She was pregnant by Victor. Finally, she hoped she would be able to give her husband something that would engender his love and attention. If the baby was a boy, she planned to name it Victor Jr. God, gross. Uh, um, uh, Rebecca's older sister, sister Alicia, got an intimation of this, of uh, some uh, some decisions being made about her uh, Rebecca's baby without her knowing. Um, so. Alicia got an intimation of this when she visited the Chinnamith household in February 1976, just before the baby was due. While talking with Nancy, Vic's first wife, about Rebecca's baby, Nancy suddenly snapped at Alice. That's my baby. There's no way Becky's going to get that baby. It's mine. So now they're going to take her child from her. Mm-hmm. As oh. Rebecca had hoped the baby was a boy, she named it Victor Jr. The event did gain her husband's attention, but only long enough for him to rest away the child. Nancy took over the mothering duties almost immediately, re- relegating Rebecca to the role of babysitter. Mm-hmm. The cruel separation from her child deepened Rebecca's unhappiness and brought her emotional problems, you think, raging to the service once again. Throughout 1976, her tantrums became more violent, her depressions more debilitating, her petty thievery increased, and so did her weight, mushrooming to nearly 200 pounds. I don't like how he talks about that, but... Yeah, but, I don't like that either. No. Uh, by the way, I should have noted this is written by an investigative journalist that's not a member of, he's not affiliated with the church or anything or, okay. or with them. So um, by early 1977, Victor and Nancy decided they'd had enough. Rebecca was dispatched to Dallas with the other cult entrepreneurs while her baby stayed with them in Denver. Oh my God. Um, that's mad. Yeah. Uh, 
Perhaps Rebecca thought she had certain immunity by being Herbal's daughter, if so she seriously miscalculated. After getting a number of complaints from Rebecca's co-workers in Dallas, as well as from her estranged husband in Denver, the prophet received another revelation from the Lord. This time it concerned his own 17-year-old daughter. Oh my god. Uh, one April afternoon at Budget Appliances, Rebecca was told her dream had been answered Herbal had agreed to let her collect Victor Jr. from Denver and return to Mexico for a visit. She was told to pack a suitcase. When the time came, Eddie Marston and Dwayne Chinoweth would drive her to the airport. Oh, his thugs are going to drive you to the airport. Yeah, yeah this seems totally up and up, yeah. Yeah. Ecstatic, Rebecca told her 14-year-old brother Isaac the news. Once in Mexico, she confided to Isaac she would find a safe place to raise her children and be free of their father's cult forever. But the news of Rebecca's imminent, imminent departure coincided with some odd activities taking place in the service area of the Perth Street Warehouse. On several occasions, Eddie and Dwayne practiced erecting and dismantling a small blue tent on the concrete floor, a tent purchased by Rebecca's husband, Victor. Eddie had also developed a sudden interest in rope tricks. <laughs> he spent much of his time, idle time, playing with a four or five foot length of rope, holding it at both ends, flipping it around an upright object, then crossing his arms and twisting. While I certainly would have given Rebecca a different explanation for his new hobby, Eddie told another cult member, other cult members he was practicing a technique that would enable him to strangle a person quickly. Oh, God. He sounds And delightful. no one thought anything about it. They're just like, oh, cool new habit. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a fun trick, yeah. Yeah. Herbal had given a far different itinerary for Rebecca's travel to Eddie and Dwayne. Instead of giving her taking her back to the airport, they were to take a detour. Give her a one-way ticket, Herbal told his disciples. He's talking about his daughter. I just can't. And, okay, I know. Like a dog that wants my attention, too, so that's fun. Um, <laughs> Eddie Marston had not... Let's see. Reaching an isolated spot outside Dallas, Dwayne pulled the LTD off the road and stopped. Both he and Eddie climbed in back on either side of Rebecca while Dwayne held the young pregnant woman down. She was pregnant again. Eddie wrapped the rope around her throat and yanked hard on both ends. Eddie Marston hadn't practiced his strangle trick long enough. Rebecca struggled furiously, kicking and thrashing as the life was choked from her. No matter how hard Eddie pulled on the rope, his victim continued to fight back. Finally, he gave Dwayne one of the rope ends. Dwayne took the rope and pulled hard as Eddie did the same with the other end. Rebecca didn't have a chance now. Her resistance gradually lost its fervor, became sporadic, then stopped. The 17-year-old girl went limp as a small rivulet of blood sweeped from her mouth. Okay. I don't know. Rebecca's killers threw her body in the trunk and drove back to Dallas, exhausted. Uh... For several days, Eddie would complain about a soreness in his hands and a risk oh, from the rope. Yeah. Oh my god. Oof, that one got me. Sorry. <laughs> I just uh, he had his pregnant daughter killed. Like this yeah. is Oof. And not even just like like she suffered. Yeah. It was a long like and they like both it took both of them, but good for her fighting though. Like, yeah, she was trying to protect that baby's life mm-hmm. for sure. Oh my god. <sighs> All right, so we're gonna fast forward. There's, I mean, so Ervil uh, goes to jail, um, and he's in prison right now. And uh, Heber LeBaron, his son, takes over. And this is a description of Heber. Sounds like a delightful character, as you can imagine. Um, When I first saw Heber, Phoenix policewoman Patty Rudin recalled, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I'm not kidding. When I started talking to him, it was like, I have to get out of this room. There's something about his presence that, well, I'll tell you, when you're in the presence of evil, something tells you that's Heber. When asked if she could pinpoint what gave her this sensation, Reardon thought for a moment. Partly it's his eyes. His eyes would stare right through you. But it's just his whole aura. He studies you, watches your eyes, your movements, everything you do. He's like a trained soldier. He could destroy you. Creepy. He's only 20 years old. So uh, he seemed an odd choice to assume the mantle of leadership after Arturo's murder. Uh, So there was another murder that I skipped, but... I feel like we've had enough of that. Anyway, the, the <laughs> um, Arturo was killed. Arturo was the... I can't remember who he is. There's so many people. But um, do you guys know Katie? Does that sound no. familiar? I mean, it uh, sounds familiar, but I don't remember. I know. I'm sure I, it was all... someone who challenged his authority or yeah. wouldn't submit to him or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. 
He was always bounce. Instead of being in the inner circle of his father's cult, the young Hebrew had been one of the child drones employed in the appliance repair businesses. So it's like a shell kind of shell company to kind of hide all their mm-hmm. under underpinnings and their evil doings. <laughs> Taken out of school after the fourth grade, he had spent his teen years toiling over broken washers and dryers for 12 to 16 hours a day, Ooh. often under the brutal su- supervision of Daniel Jordan. Heber's star began to rise in 1980 when Ervil was convicted in Utah. Heber's mother, Anna, Mar- Anna Mae Marston, was one of the few wives of the prophet who stood by him. Lovely. She arranged to have Heber, her eldest son with Ervil, ordained as one of the cult's high priests. An even greater honor awaited when Ervil wrote the Book of New Covenants, should, which is where all this stuff comes from, all this garbage where they're uh, anyway uh should arturo fail or fall as in his duties as heir oh arturo was the heir to the all right to take okay. over okay i knew he was like a son or something uh with the murder of arturo he was automatically catapulted to the spring leadership so that's heber um after da-da-da. oh this uh, was some Sorry, I'm trying to... Oh, okay. I was going to skip this, but this is actually some important. Uh, Heber took the appointment seriously. No longer would he obey the commands of others or work like a slave. Now others would obey and work for him. The first order of business, however, was to cleanse the cult by inflicting justice upon those who had betrayed Arturo. In early 1984, Heber left the repair shop in Dallas and set out for Mexico. Uh, So, Leo Ivaniak, remember the beginning when I read that? excerpt and he said Leo Ivaniuk had been atoned so he's this is where Heber had Heber takes him out uh, as the Rios brothers told it Gamaliel had arranged a meeting between Leo and Arturo in complete good faith so that a peace settlement could be made um, but Heber was no Mahatma Gandhi <laughs> weird rather than let bygones be got bygones he was using the detente on the ranch to collect evidence in his investigations, he discovered there was one small item that Gamaliel was leaving out of his account, a crucial detail that gave light to the peace uh, conference story. From talking with the children uh, on the ranch, Heber learned that Yolanda Rios, Gamaliel's sister and one of Ervil's widows, had made some unusual preparations on the morning of December 28th. Just before Arturo arrived at La Jolla, Yolanda had gathered the children and shepherded them into the airstream. When Arturo had driven his new GMC pickup into the yard, Yolanda had drawn all the blinds in the motorhome so the children wouldn't see what was about to happen. With these findings, Heber finally decided to strike. One afternoon in early March, Gamaliel sat, sat in the airstream talking with four fellow cult members, Andrew and Aaron LeBaron and Andres and Alex Zarate. There's so many of the same names over and over. When Heber stepped through the door... Uh, he confronted Gamaliel with the new information he'd gathered on Arturo's murder. Murder, I keep murder. Murder. Gamaliel strenuously maintained his innocence, desperately looking for one of his companions to, ne- to the next for support. After a few minutes, Heber entered the discussion. He took a 45 mod- automatic from his waistband and shot Gamaliel in the face with, from point blank range. After staring down at the dead man, his head shattered by the bullet, Heber tucked his gun back into his waistband and turned to the others. Somebody clean up this fucking mess, he ordered, then walked oh, casually from the motor. Sure. Oh, I am a monster. Language. I'm pretty sure that God loves uh, you to murder, uh, but not swear. Yeah. 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 So go take this guy out, but um, you keep your language clean, sir. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The audacity. Let's see. Uh,. More than the other Mexican women in Ervil's harem, though, Yolanda had proven her loyalty to the faith. She had assisted Bonda White in the murder of Noemi Zarate, had sheltered her husband when she was on the run in the late 1970s, and had stayed true to him after his capture. In 1982, she had joined Arturo on Rancho La Jolla. After her 15 years of service, Yolanda would pay the ultimate price. In time, a cult defector would give a horrifying account of Yolanda's murder. Uh, Let's see... So Yolanda was reportedly kept on the ranch as a virtual slave of Heber and his lieutenants. In early May 1984, she was bundled into a pickup and driven across the border into the United States. Her destination was the cult safe house in Dallas. So, human trafficking. High Meadow Drive is a street of single-level 
middle class homes about 10 miles northwest of downtown Dallas. It is in what realtors call the quiet residential neighborhood, except the high metal flanks the LBJ, LBJ freeway, and is enveloped by the incessant hum of passing traffic. Uh, so she, yeah, I'm not going to, let's see. Yeah, so he Heber has Yolanda killed. Yolanda begged for her life for several hours. Over and over again, she was interrogated on what had happened on the fateful morning of December 28th. Over and over again, Yolanda pleaded her innocence. She admitted taking the, taking the children into the airstream and pulling the blinds. It was only because she was sensed something might happen, not because she knew something would. She hadn't known what Leo was planning and only wanted to protect the children in case there were trouble, was trouble. With each new denial, Yolanda, Yolanda was ordered to drink more of the wine, and the litany of questions began again. Increasingly drunk and beside herself with fear, Yolanda finally threw herself on the mercy of her tribunal. There had been moments moments of weakness she desperately offered when she had been swayed by her brothers into believing that maybe Leo uh, was right, but now she saw the great mistake she had made. Um, then he puts it to vote, and who believes that we ought to put her to death? Four hands were raised. Oh, Yolanda oh Ruiz has been sent, had been sentenced to death by a four-to-one vote. Oh, just vote on someone's life. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, she was, let's see, yeah, I'm not going to go into how she was killed. She, uh, yeah, it's pretty gruesome. Um, I'm going to skip to, I know you got to be on your way. So the, the four o'clock murders are the ones that I initially was trying to find, that's why I bought this book, was to find out information about those. Because you can find information on these ones, though, that I mentioned. But these ones are the ones that I couldn't find, like, what happened. Um, they just kind of vaguely talk about them. Um, so the there were three. is the Mark, Mark Chinoweth, Dwayne Chinoweth, and Ed, Eddie Marston, who were the, like, his thugs this whole time. They were his right-hand men this whole time, right? And um, so they're, uh, let's see, Dan. Mark Chinua hopping on a plane. So they know, they see all these people are being killed and they're like, oh shit, we're done. We're, we're going to be killed too. So they, most like Eddie, Mark, Mark knew. I don't know. I think they all kind of knew that they were like on the list. They'd have um, to see after, the writing on the wall if everybody's getting cleansed, right? Yeah. Yeah. After Dan's murder, Mark Chinwith hopped on a plane to Utah to meet with his old nemesis, Richard Forbes. Ten years before, Forbes had tried to get Mark put away forever, but now they were on the same side. Uh, Mark's problems were soon compounded by the loose lips of his own wife. Without his permission, Lillian gave an interview to a reporter of the Salt Lake Tribune shortly after Jordan's murder. Uh, Lillian, Erville's daughter and once one of his most fanatic disciples, used the forum to blast both her deceased father and her sons, who it seemed were carrying on his blood, blood atonement campaign. Lillian explained, uh, her father, Lillian explained, forsook the ways of the Lord and was turned over to the bufferings of Satan. Those boys share their father's insanity. They feel it is dad's wish that they are carrying out. They even think God would have them do these terrible things. Uh, if that wasn't enough, Lillian went on to identify her own husband as among those marked for death next. Mark was furious with his wife for giving the interview. If there had ever been a chance for forgiveness from the LeBaron boys, Mark knew it was now gone. Uh, so she sounds lovely. Uh, Mark's for voting, but I mean, Mark's not necessarily a good guy either. So I don't know. They all suck. Let's see. By June 1988, the with households in Tolina Way and McDade Street had become suburban fortresses. The doors padlocked, the windows secured with iron bars, guns strategically placed in various rooms in case of attack. The children were rarely let out to play, and the adults hurried from their cars to get inside. Despite it all, when Thelma Chinuith was offered a good deal on a used washer on Rena Street, she went for the bait. Uh, this one, yeah, I'll this one's terrible. I'll take it down every time. Yeah, Eddie Marston. Um, he was. Let's see. So he goes, shows up at the house on Sheer Lane at one o'clock that afternoon. The driveway at the side of the house is empty. Uh, Mr. Wilson. Oh, let's see. He was only there a few minutes when Perry Wilson called again. Um, Mr. Wilson apologized for missing Eddie at the house, but his last-minute errands were taking longer than he had anticipated. Would it be possible to reschedule the appointment for four o'clock? Eddie was annoyed. Um, there had been so. Uh, no such wasted trip in Houston shortly before one o'clock. Terry Phillips had called Dwayne's appliance shop to say he wouldn't be able to make it back to his home on Arena Street by the scheduled time. A new meeting was arranged for four o'clock. 
Neither Eddie Marston nor Dwayne Chinuith guessed the real reason for the delay. Someone on the Houston hit team was not yet in position. Shortly before 4 o'clock, Dwayne Chinuith got into the driver's seat of his 1986 GMC pickup truck for the trip to Arena Street. Climbing next to him was his 8-year-old daughter, Jennifer. At that moment, Eddie Marston was leaving his shop in Irving, merging his pickup into the steady western flow of traffic on Shady Grove Lane for the street, straight three-and-a-half-mile run to Shear Lane. In northwest Houston, a young man in a four-door sedan was easing out of the IGA parking lot on the corner of Blaylock and Hammerley. The young man had been sitting in the car for quite some time, his attention focused on the um, appliance repair shop directly across the intersection. Just before 4 o'clock, he drove the sedan a very short distance away from the IGA, across the two lanes of Blaylock, and into the parking lot of Reliance Appliances. At almost exactly 4 o'clock, Dwayne turned left off. I'm going to skip. There were no cars in the driveway and the house was dark. Sure that his client would be along soon, Dwayne backed his truck up the driveway uh, up until it was just a few feet from the right door of the two-car garage. As he was reversing, a black Chevrolet Silverado pickup suddenly sped down Arena from the other direction. It was driven by a man or a woman dressed as a man with short blonde hair and wearing a white Panama hat. In the passenger seat was a white man in a business suit, his face framed by a short strawberry blonde beard. The Silverado stopped directly in front of Dwayne's truck, hemming him in. The bearded man stepped out and started up the driveway. Dwayne climbed out of his truck and, standing beside the open driver's door, waited for the approaching man, presumably Mr. Phillips. The man in the suit exchanged a few words with Dwayne. He then pulled a 357 Magnum revolver from a shoulder holster and shot him in the chest. The bullet sent Dwayne to the ground instantly, his legs sprawling over the lawn, his head coming to the rest on the driveway just behind his truck's left front tire. Stepping around the front driver's door, the gunman bent down and fired two more bullets into his victim's brain. There was a scream. The killer peered into the pickup cab to see eight-year-old Jennifer huddled against the car door, her mouth open in a long, terrified well. The man in the suit leaned into the cab. He raised his gun to the little girl's head. Oh, no. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the little girl was tilted back in the seat and the sun was behind her was shining through her head. It was one of the strangest things I've ever had to see, to look in there and see the sunlight shining through her head. Jeez. Oh my oh. God. I looked inside and saw one of the biggest shocks of my life. This little eight year old girl and there shot in the face and in the mouth. I saw her lying there, her head, you know, uh, I'm not going to read that. Anyway, they called her Jenny. Um, so there was four, four o'clock murders. There was supposed to be only three. They didn't plan on Jenny being killed. So Yeah, she just was with her dad, right? Yeah. So um But because of the number four, it probably made them really happy and were like, Oh, it's a sign from God that there needed to be four of them instead. Yeah. Fucking psycho. Uh so just like everyone's so murdering all, everyone. Uh, yeah. Let's see. I'm trying to think of I don't need to, I'm just trying to make sure I get all the so all so Eddie, Dwayne, and Mark. What's Mark? God. Yeah, Mark. Uh, were all killed, and then Jenny. Um, and they kind of they eventually put it all together. They, they were all connected, and they were supposed to. Um, but they didn't. Let's see. Even the physical layout of the Irving murder scene bore a remarkable resemblance to that on Arena Street. The house was situated on a corner, its front facing Shear Lane, while its driveway led on to 11th Street. This made the driveway visible from a wide range of vantage points. The killer could have parked nearly three blocks back on 11th to watch for Eddie's arrival. When he showed up, Eddie quickly became the fourth victim of the four o'clock murders. So... Yeah, those are the four o'clock murders. I don't. Um, yeah. Just so much like know. death and <laughs> tragedy over um, some guy claiming he's the one mighty and strong, and they're all fighting for this power. Right. It's really tragic. Yeah. It's so tragic. <sighs> kind of timely um, with uh, all of us watching Under the Banner of Heaven too right now because it's so. Um, we're uh, not all watching it, Dusty. Sorry, sorry. Oh, <laughs> Is it yeah. not available in the UK yet? I thought it came out in the UK the same time as Canada. No, it comes July? out sometime this month. I think it's July 25th. Oh my God, come on. I know. <laughs> it's really good. July 25th? Uh, okay, so while in prison, LeBaron wrote a 400-page Bible known as the Book of the New Covenants, which included a commandment to kill disobedient church members who were included in a hit list written by LeBaron. Some 20 copies were printed and distributed. 
Um, three of the murders were carried out simultaneously on June 27th, 1988. Dwayne Chinuith, uh, Eddie Marston, and Mark Chinuith. Um, of the seven killers involved in this four o'clock murders, five were found guilty of murder. One, Cynthia LeBaron, testified against her siblings and was granted immunity. The final suspect, Jacqueline LeBaron, was captured by the FBI in May 2010. On June 16, 2011, Jacqueline LeBaron pleaded guilty to conspiracy to obstruct religious beliefs and faced a five-year maximum sentence in a future sentencing hearing. On December 14, 2012, Jacqueline Tarsa LeBaron was released from federal custody several months earlier than her original sentence was calculated. Her current status regarding the completion of her court-mandated mandated supervised parole and restitution has not been released to the public. Although her plea agreement is public information, her actual testimony in court is sealed. It has been estimated that more than 25 people were killed as a result of LeBaron's prison cell orders. Many of his family members and other members of the group still remain in hiding for fear of retribution from LeBaron's remaining followers. However, LeBaron's daughter, Anna LeBaron, who escaped from the cult aged 13, published an account of her life in the cult in 2017 when she was 48. She said that the bloodletting was over and family members were no longer in danger. Oh, yeah, that's, that's so scary for her to say. <laughs> like, yeah. God, could you could you imagine just like being involved in this family? This is craziness. It's so scary. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> oh, yikes. Yeah. I mean, we left the Mormon church. Luckily, like our families don't just come and try to kill us. Like, people, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> Do a match. Yeah. Oh my word. Ah. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for joining me on that to... journey. Yeah, thanks Ooh. for having us. <laughs> thanks for my Sunday. Uh, I know, I'm all like, well, sorry. not uh, <laughs> I'm like, Need to go do something now. else now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's noon, time to go drink. Uh, <laughs> And I was like, oh, we're supposed to have a lovely, like, Sunday dinner barbecue. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go downstairs and be like, wow, wow, wow. Seriously. Uh, wow. That was a lot. Wait. <laughs> was it worth the wait? <laughs> yeah. It was. It was well done, Jake. <sighs> oh, little munchkin. So cute. <laughs> For those listening, you're probably like, did you just call Jake a little munchkin? No, he's just a little son. He's so cute. (laughs) Jake, our little munchkin. (laughs) (laughs) He did research. He's growing up so damn. (laughs) (laughs) 